Genesis 4, we're going to read the first two verses to begin. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. We'll pause right there. There's a lot more to come, but we'll just start right there. Last week, you remember, last time, we saw Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden. They are no longer allowed to live there. They have sinned. They gave in to the temptation of the serpent. The Lord put the curse upon the whole earth, increased pain, increased sorrow. And now we get our first glimpse of, I guess, what we would call normal life, life outside of paradise. And this chapter... If you remember, we've gone through this a few times. This is the end of the first Toledoth section of Genesis. Do you remember that? The word Toledoth is Hebrew. It means generations. And there are several times in the book of Genesis where it will say, these are the generations of. And back in chapter 2, verse 4, it said, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that extends all the way to the end of chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, we're going to see that word again in verse 1. And this is the Toledoth of Adam. And that's how the book is going to be organized. So this is the end of the first major, or I guess the second major section of Genesis, because it began with the creation of the world before we saw that first Toledoth. And Adam and Eve have their first child. It says that Adam knew Eve, his wife. You are familiar with this if you know your Bible pretty well. Know, to know somebody in Scripture is a euphemism for the sexual union in marriage, typically. It's actually a very beautiful metaphor because that is how you know somebody intimately and specially, and it's something that is to be reserved for marriage. But I don't want to spend much more time on that because there will be other times to go over it in more detail. But Adam knew Eve, his wife. She gave birth to their firstborn son named Cain and their secondborn named Abel. And this is significant because you remember that not only did the Lord give the curse after they ate the fruit, but he also gave a promise. He said that the seed of woman would one day crush the head of the seed of the serpent. He also said that there would be enmity between the woman and the serpent. He was prophesying conflict between the serpent, which was, of course, the devil, and Eve and her children. There, there would be conflict between Satan and mankind. But there's also a sense that the Bible will pick up in other places where there is struggle between the godly and the ungodly. Those who you could call the children of the devil, not literally, but spiritually, and those who are the children of God, the children of Eve, the true children of Adam, you could say. And so this is exciting in one sense because these children are beginning to be born. And we know that the Lord promised that there would be a deliverer that would come out of the children of Adam and Eve. But this is actually going to be the first conflict between the spiritual seed of woman and the spiritual seed of the serpent, between the righteous and the unrighteous. But Eve rejoices at her firstborn son. She names him Cain, which is in Hebrew Q-A-Y-I-N. I always get a kick out of how we decided to anglicize the names in the Bible, especially the Hebrew ones. But this is Cain which means gotten. The Hebrew word for get is kana. Some have speculated that there's maybe a touch of pride here 
in Eve's heart. That'll be contrasted at the end of the chapter with Seth, because here she says, I have gotten a son. And then when Seth is born, she's going to say, I have received a son. You might not want to push that too far, but it's interesting to think about that I've gotten a son, as in I have achieved what the Lord has promised. And they have another son named Abel. And this is in Hebrew, Hevel. It has a het at the beginning of it. And you know this word, even if you don't know that you know this word. Hevel in Hebrew means vapor, or it means wind. You see it a lot in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. In Hebrew, that is hevel, hevel, all is hevel. And that's literally refers to like a vapor, like a mist. You know when you're you're cooking macaroni and cheese, because that's what I do now. I'm a stay-at-home dad half the time. You're cooking stuff, and you see the steam going up. It's there, and it's gone. That's what that means, and so it's used metaphorically to describe how life passes so quickly. Whenever it says man is but a breath, it's using that word hevel. So that's this guy's name. Abel is hevel. It means vapor. Just here for a moment. So you've got Cain. You've got Abel. And there are other children that the next chapter will refer to, but they're not really important right now, so they're not introduced. One of these kids becomes a farmer, like his dad, that's Cain, and the other becomes a shepherd or a herdsman. Now, as you go through the story of Cain and Abel, there is a tendency to want to assign moral value to the things they're doing, like saying Cain was wrong to be a farmer. He should have been a shepherd like Abel. But you'll see that the text doesn't really pull those things out. So it's not that Abel was better than Cain for being a shepherd. There were just different jobs that had to be done. But what is interesting, we know that it will not be until after the flood that the Lord will permit men to eat the flesh of animals. So Abel, tending the flocks, is probably tending them for their wool, but also possibly tending them for sacrifices, because he's not keeping them for food yet. It's just an interesting little note to look at here. And things seem to be going well. But the evil that began in the garden, you know, has been passed on to these boys. And it's no spoiler, it's been thousands of years. The story does not have a happy ending. And I hope that what we can learn from this story, a very familiar story, is that you cannot ignore sin and just leave it alone and expect that it will be quiet and just go away. That sin might even lie dormant for a while, but it is always seeking, as the Lord is going to say to Cain, to dominate, to master you. And we have to resist it. In particular, we're going to look at the sin of bitterness tonight, which Cain was absolutely guilty of, and it led to the first murder. And our, our theme verse, I guess you could say, that might be worth writing in the margins here is Hebrews chapter 12 verses 14 through 15, and we have instruction given to us in the church where it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The author is warning us against roots of bitterness. You can't see them, but they're there. And then you have one good thunderstorm and poof, all of a sudden there it is and it's causing trouble. Cain was the first man to break the peace on earth. He was a slave to his own resentment and his own bitterness. And if we do not keep a close watch on our own hearts, we too will defile ourselves, as Hebrews 12 says, and defile those around us. So we have Cain, we have Abel. Let's go ahead and read now verse 3 down to verse 8. 
In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So we jump to a point where both of these boys are, they're grown, they're likely married, they have an occupation, perhaps they had children of their own. The family is multiplying, just as the Lord had told them to do. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. And you can see here that although Adam and Eve have been driven out of the Garden of Eden, they have not been abandoned by God. God has graciously provided a way for Adam and his family to still have fellowship with him. And this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's interesting for me to think about and maybe for you too. When the Lord would tell Moses how to build the tabernacle and when they would design the temple, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence was said to rest, the Lord had cherubim over what was called the mercy seat. They had cherubim painted on the walls behind the Ark of the Covenant and the, the veil of the temple, the curtain, had cherubim on it. And a lot of people have thought that what is being represented there is the first place these people would have gone to have fellowship with God. The first holy place they could not get into was Eden. So you can paint a picture maybe of them coming to the gates of Eden where those cherubim were. They can't go in, but they can come and they can offer sacrifices there. It doesn't say, but it's fun to think about. And it paints a little picture for us. They do have fellowship with God, but it's not as easy as it was before. Remember last time the Lord would just walk in the garden in the cool of the day? Well, now they have to bring a sacrifice to atone for their sins. Not long ago, we were in Acts chapter 17, do you remember? And Paul was explaining to the Athenians that in the past, God had looked over the sins of the people. And he had been patient and been merciful until the day that Christ came. So you can see now, although Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and their family, they are still in their sins. Christ has not died to atone for sins yet. The Lord has, in his mercy, allowed the sacrifice of an animal or of the produce of the field to cover them for now. They're still going to need that sacrifice later, but God is able to graciously anticipate the cross. And Paul says in Acts 17, that there's been a shift in the way that God is dealing with people now, because no longer is there any excuse. God, in Acts 17, it says, has commanded all men everywhere to repent. So this is what the Lord has done. He is anticipating the day that he will cover their sins, but he doesn't want to wait until that day has happened, because he loves his people and he wants to take good care of them. So they bring their offerings. Cain is a farmer. He brings an offering of the produce of the field, the fruit of the ground. This does not mean necessarily that it was specifically fruit, but it was the fruit that the ground had brought forth. And Abel the shepherd brings an offering of the flock with its fat portions. Here's another thing I want to mention, similar to what I said before. There is nothing in the book of Genesis that says Cain was wrong for bringing the produce of the field. In fact, the word for offering there is mincha, 
and it's a general word, but in the law of Moses, it's most often used to refer to the grain offerings. So Cain is not wrong for bringing the fruit of the field. I've heard it preached before that he needed to bring a blood sacrifice. That's not what he's going to get in trouble for. He's not going to get in trouble for bringing a blood sacrifice. He's going to get in trouble for his attitude. Because you see here, the Lord had no regard for Cain and his offering. It wasn't just his offering God had no regard for. It was Cain, the person who was making the offering. The New Testament actually refers quite a bit to Cain and Abel, and Hebrews 11 verse 4 explains to us why Abel was accepted and Cain was not. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what the New Testament tells us, what we know from Genesis, it wasn't that Cain's offering itself was wrong. It's that Cain's heart was out of line. Cain was a worker of the ground. He would have brought the first fruits of what he had produced. Abel did the same thing, except Abel was a shepherd. He would have brought a sheep. Cain was a worker of the ground. He would have brought produce. And Cain may have followed the rule to the letter. We, we always think of the blood sacrifices, but there were a lot of grain offerings and produce offerings and first fruits offerings that were brought. That's probably why Cain got so mad. If he had known that he was sort of skimping out on the offering, and the Lord doesn't accept it, he might have gone, okay, yeah, that, that one's on me. I phoned this one in. I was cutting corners. But instead, Cain gets mad as if it should have been accepted. Maybe this kind of offering had been accepted before. But the Lord knew his heart. Nobody else might have been able to tell, but the Lord could see his heart. And the Lord is going to expose his heart, not just to other people, but to himself. The Lord ever do that to you, where all of a sudden you do or say something and you realize, huh, so that's what I feel about that. That's what I think of that person. I didn't realize that was making me mad until I was pushed over the edge. This is what God does. The Lord does not regard his offering. It doesn't really say what that means. It could have been that there was the fire that consumed it, similar to the story of Elijah. It could have been just the Lord speaking. We see that God is speaking to them here, and God might have just told him, Cain, I have no regard for you or your offering. You can see this, and this is important, even from the very beginning, that in the New Old Testament and the New Testament, and even throughout church history, the churches had to learn, God does not regard specific rituals. God does not bind himself to the rules of worship. That's magic. Magic is when you say, if I put all these things in a pot and stir it up and say the magic words, the genie has to show up and do what I say. That's not how God works. Cain thinks he can bring the appropriate offering and then God will be fine. The Lord goes, no. I'm, that's not how it works, Cain. I know your heart, and your heart stinks. Hosea 6, verse 6, the Lord says, For I desire steadfast love. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The Lord says, I, I don't need your offerings, guys. I don't need the, your first fruits. I don't need your lambs. I don't need your bulls. I want your heart. If you think that you can come to church... You can tithe, you can serve on a ministry team, you can sing all the songs, you can pray even, but you harbor resentment in your heart, and you've got immorality churning around in there, and you go home and you're somebody totally different, and you think that 
God has to honor you because you did all the right things, you are gravely mistaken. I've shared before, there's in the play, the, the Crucible, which is about the Salem witch trials. They're going from house to house, and they're having everybody have to prove that they're not witches. And they come to John Proctor, and he says, of course I'm a Christian. He says, I hung the doors on the church. And the guy who's doing the investigation says, that is a very good sign. It's like, oh, good. Well, you hung the doors of the church. No, no unbeliever could do that. <laughs> sort of silly, and that's the point the play is trying to draw out, that you're going to judge people by these weird external things. God doesn't do that. This is what makes following Jesus both easier and more difficult, doesn't it? It's easier in one way because you don't have this big, long list of stuff, and you're not going to accidentally step with your left foot when you're supposed to step with your right, and now God's angry at you. But it also makes it more difficult because you can't rely on those things. You can't rely on getting all the rituals right. You can't rely on bringing the sacrifice every time. It's got to be about your heart. I heard some people one time, they were having a discussion about religion, and they said, the problem with Christianity is they, they say it's not enough to do the right things. Your heart has to be right. And they say, that's just impossible. You're asking too much of people. And I feel like Paul, when he says, you're, you're getting there. You're getting close. You're getting close to step one, which is you can't do it. But even from the very beginning, the Lord is not going to just accept the offering. He has to examine the heart. And Cain was angry about it. But the Lord confronts him. He rebukes him for being angry. And verse 7 is, is such a good verse. It's worth memorizing. And I'm going to read it again. It says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? That word for accepted means lifted up. He's like, your face has fallen. If you want your face to be lifted back up, Cain, if you want to be accepted, do well. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You know, righteousness is not complicated. Read through the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a great prophet in the things he said. They all were great, but he has this whole long speech where he says, guys, if you do the right thing, and your heart is right before God, and you're, you're humble before him, the Lord will honor you. But if you stop doing that and you start sinning, don't think that you can bank on what you did before. He says, and if you live a rotten life, God's not going to be happy with you. But if you change and do the right thing, it's, it's so basic, and it seems so obvious to us now. But we have to hear it and know it. He says, Cain, if you want to have a right relationship with me, you've got to do the right thing. You can't just expect that we're going to have this connection and this fellowship all the time when you're walking in sin. That's the reason I drove your mom and dad out of the Garden of Eden. And he gives them a warning too. Sin is crouching at the door. It's lying in wait for you like a robber or like an animal that wants to pounce on you. And he says, its desire is for you. This is the exact same phrase that the Lord used in chapter 3, verse 16, when he told Eve, your desire will be for your husband. Which is why that's not a nice thing that her desire is for her husband. Just like it's not a nice thing that sin's desire was for Cain. It's both a combative relationship that God is describing here. It says, sin wants to own you, Cain. It wants to rule you. It wants to dominate you. And we can think to ourselves, well, not me. Not me, though. I mean, I used to deal with that when I was younger, or maybe other people struggle with that, but I don't struggle. And then you want to bring out the list of sins that you're really good at, at overcoming. You never want to point out the things that you're really bad at. No one ever talks about how great they are at overcoming pride, for example. Like, I just don't deal with pride. I guess I'm just a great person. <laughs> Sin is 
crouching at the door of your heart. James puts it this way. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is where sin comes from. He says in verse 13, I didn't put it up there, but he says, don't blame God for your temptation. He said in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Sin comes from your desire. There are some things we get tempted with, and it just washes right over you. Some people, they're just not tempted with money. You can wave a million dollars in front of them, and they're like, what am I going to do with a million dollars? I've kind of got everything I need. I've got food. I've got a house. What's the big deal? But you start making fun of them. You start getting under their skin, and they'll blow up and scream in your face. Other people, they're just imperturbable. You can yell and scream in their face. They don't care, but you wave a million dollars in front of them. All of a sudden, now it's a temptation, and each person is different. And James is saying, don't blame God. You wouldn't have sinned if you didn't want to. If that wasn't in you, it would never have come out. That's what sin is, and this is what God's telling Cain. Cain, that sin that your parents committed dwells in you too, and you've got to rule over it, because if you don't, it will rule over you. And as James said, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, which is exactly what's going to happen in this story. Sin is, to use one of my favorite illustrations, sin is like the cobra lily. Bring this up. Look at that thing. That is a cobra lily. It is a carnivorous plant. And you look at how that thing is shaped, how it curves over the top like that, and it's got the two leaves coming down. How this thing works is those leaves that are hanging down have a sweet nectar that comes out of it, and it attracts flies and it attracts mosquitoes and things. And what they do is they'll crawl up those they crawl up these leaves and they go up inside of this hood thing and there's all this sweet, sticky sap and nectar and the flies love it. But then when they've had their fill, they want to fly away because it's got these dapplings on it, because the light comes in, it confuses the fly, it can't get out, so it just starts buzzing around, you know, like when it's flying against the window of your house or something. And what it ends up doing is it starts flying down the stalk. And inside that stalk, there are these little fibers that are all pointed downward. And the fly, when it tries to go up, it can't go up. It can only go down. And the farther down it goes, you can see how it narrows, and it gets harder and harder for it to get out. Down at the bottom near the roots, digestive fluid is waiting for it. When the fly falls into it, it will be digested alive and absorbed up those red veins you can see until it's turned into more sweet stuff to attract other flies. That's what sin is like. What does sin do? We're going to focus on resentment as an example, but it can apply to anything. This was the sin of Cain. You all have hate, bitterness, resentment, whatever you want to call it, dwelling inside of you. And you may have it under control. Good. I'm glad you do. I'm glad you're not lashing out and screaming and hurting people. But that's where sin wants to take you. And Cain should have taken the warning more seriously. So, Let's make sure we take it seriously tonight. What does sin do? It's like the cobra lily. First, it attracts you with that sweet stuff. Sin is always sweet in the beginning. It always feels good. Let's talk about resentment. When you start criticizing somebody, it just feels good at first, doesn't it? Just making fun of people. When you're surrounded with, with the guys and there's somebody that you just can't stand, and then you start making fun of them in front of people, and everybody laughs, like, yeah, that does feel good. And then you start having arguments in your head with them, and you win every single time. 
and then they always end up with them like on their knees, like begging for forgiveness from you. And yeah, well, I'm glad you learned your lesson. It feels good. It feels good to resent people, to hate people, to feel smarter than them. And you think, well, I don't hate them, but we all know what they're like. That's a really nice way to get around doing what we shouldn't be doing. But that's the first thing. You get that, that rush. I don't know what it is. We get a rush when we feel better than people or when we feel like somebody above us is getting what we shouldn't and it makes us angry and you get that rush. That's the sweetness of sin. The second thing, though, once you're inside it, sin confuses you. It denies you a way out because now you're starting to get to a place where you probably shouldn't be thinking this way about that person or about people in general. But you've found that you've set patterns in your mind where you, you just become a judgmental person. You're just cynical about people. And now you're not just talking about one person, but it's everybody, right? Or it's that crowd or these people or that group or this part of town or that country or whatever it is. And it's all of them. And you're just cynical and you're like, yeah, I mean, I don't hate them, but I mean, geez, can't stand it. And you're like, you know, I probably shouldn't think like that. But you don't know how to think right anymore. You set grooves in your mind and you just slide right into those grooves every time you're thinking. Then sin traps you. Starts pulling you down lower and lower. It starts justifying worse and worse attitudes and behaviors towards people. Now it's coming out. Now you're speaking to people. You're letting them know what you think about them. You're maybe even being physical or you're doing things to them to hurt them. Maybe not to their body or to their things, but you're going out of your way to make them miserable or to make somebody who's representative of that group that you can't stand to make them miserable. Now you're no longer just getting, you know, ah, yeah, we, just, we, we tease them, we talk about them, but I mean, I guess they're okay. Now you're angry. Now you're mad. Now you're venomous in the way you speak about them, and it brings you lower and lower justifying worse and worse attitudes, worse and worse behaviors toward people. Now you can't even see the problem anymore. And finally, it destroys you. Bitterness and resentment will destroy you because it brings you down until now there's really not anything of you left. All that's left is the bitterness towards other people. You don't even know what you're like anymore. You just know you don't like them. I don't like him. I don't like her. I don't want anything to do with them. And you don't know anything positive on the other side, you know? It's not that I love this so much that I don't like that they're threatening it. You've lost all that. Now I just hate them. That's what bitterness does. That's what all sin does. Use whatever example you like. It's like a cobra lily. And God is telling Cain right now, Cain, you are headed to a dark place. I don't care. I'm not going to do anything. The Lord's like, Cain? That sin is ready to pounce on you, and it's going to bring you down. That's what sin does. How do we combat that? Well, what does the Lord say? You must rule over it. You've got to be self-controlled, dominating your own flesh and your own mind, that your body is not a tool that uses you, but your body is a tool that you use. Your mind is under your control. You don't let yourself think that way. When you start catching yourself meditating and brooding on something, you cut it off right away. We're not doing that. Examine your own heart. Let the Lord show you. The Lord is on your team. He wants to show you the enemy's playbook. Like, look, this is what the enemy does. He starts by doing this, 
And then when you're angry, he brings this person along. And then you see more of it than you normally would. And then he wants to keep your mind on that all day so that it sits and it festers. Or whatever the sin is. And you've got to learn to start flipping the script to step away from it. Identify those thought patterns and crush them. Cain was so mad at Abel, he was ready to kill him. It didn't start that way. It started with him resenting goody-two-shoes Abel. But he thinks he's so great. I'm the oldest son. I'm the son of the promise. Who does he think he is? He doesn't even work hard. I'm the one out here growing the food. He's over there just taking care of the sheep. Who cares about sheep anyway? But then one day it becomes to the point where the enemy pushes him. He had prepared him for this. And he pushed. And there was no foundation for him to stand on. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. What does that mean? Don't be like everybody else but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I can't remember where I heard this. I wish I had written it down, but somewhere along the line I heard somebody say, the Bible's not trying to tell you how to think. Yes, it is. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's not fair. It is fair because everybody else is thinking crazy. They're thinking sinful. They're thinking murderous. They're thinking petty. And the Lord says, let, let the gospel change the way you think. The good news is, even if you have fallen down that hole, and you can look at parts of your life where you're like, man, this is dangerous. This is a problem. If the enemy were to attack me here with everything he had, I wouldn't be able to resist. If there's that woman or that man at work that you're always fantasizing and thinking about, and you're letting those little flirtations not really go anywhere, but they're always there, and you've got a relationship that you shouldn't have. What if the enemy were to do a full court press on you and try to push you into a relationship? Would you be able to stop? Well, I would want to. Yeah, but are you, are you weakening your own foundation so that you can't? The Lord is telling Cain, stop this now. The Lord's not going to try and stop him when he's in the middle of the act of killing his brother. It's too late then. He says, Cain, cut it off now. The good news is that sin is never inevitable when you're in Christ Jesus. The Bible says in, in 1 John, I believe it is, that I've written these things to you that you may not sin. The Lord doesn't want us to sin. And the Lord is with us to help us not sin. Your story can end differently than Cain's can. But Cain did not take control of his own heart. He let his heart turn to action and even murder. This is the first murder of his own brother. If you do not clamp down and rule over your sin, the moment it shows itself, it will grow until you cannot control it. Sin will control you if you don't control it. Everybody's different. Everybody's got their own mishmash and mix of stuff that's going to make them sin. You've got to find out what yours is and you've got to rule over it. And we've got to help each other do that too. Well, verse 9, let's see what happens. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? That should probably have an exclamation point rather than a question mark. It's not, Wait a minute, what did you do? The Lord knows what he did. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. 
Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. From your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So again, the Lord confronts Cain. I do think it is very interesting how readily people could speak with the Lord then. The Lord was still communicating with his people. But Cain has flagrantly denied the warning of the Lord. He has committed murder. There is a dead human being for the first time ever. This is that conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Jesus said in Luke 11 that Abel was the first prophet. I think Jesus knew what he was talking about, even though Genesis doesn't specifically say that. And Cain killed him. But you see the seed of the serpent striking down the seed of the woman. The devil knows that his defeat is going to come through the children of Eve. So what is he doing? He's trying to get rid of it. He's trying to corrupt it. He's trying to kill it. We know this from 1 John 3.12. It says we should be not like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. This is that conflict, and it's going to stretch all the way through the Bible. The Lord curses Cain. He refuses to bless his efforts as a farmer anymore. We're not doing this, Cain. I'm not going to let you continue without any consequences. And he warns him that you will be a fugitive. From whom? From his brothers and sisters who find out what he did. He says, they're going to come for you, Cain. They're not just going to let you get away with this. And the Lord doesn't condemn them for that either. They have every right to do this. This is what happens when we give in to sin, y'all. It disrupts what we try to do. God is not going to bless your life when it's full of hate and full of bitterness. Have you ever met somebody who was so bitter that they couldn't do anything? They were just totally paralyzed in their life? It's really odd to think about it because you're like, well, you should still be able to function normally. I, there's something about bitterness, hate, resentment, whatever you want to call it, that eats at a person. They can't hold down a job because they're just so full of anger towards everybody that they lash out. They can't make anything productive because all they can think about is how it's going to go wrong or how it doesn't matter because of what that person's going to do. That's what bitterness does. They end up in the dark. They're gnawing on their own hurts like they're gnawing on old bones. You ever meet an old person who's way past the prime of their life, but they're still sitting there and all they can talk about is all the things that were done wrong to them when they were growing up? Maybe even like from decades and decades ago. And they're sitting there and they're just... They're like Gollum with the ring. They just can't let it go. And it's, it's not good for you. It wrecks your life. But not only that, like Cain, you'll be driven out from among people. If you are lashing out and hate at everybody around you, you're going to end up alone like Cain. You're going to drive people away from you. I don't understand this personally, but I've seen it happen enough times that I know it's true. There are folks who have been hurt, who have been embittered by somebody else, that they then project that onto everybody they meet. And they think there's no way that anybody else is sincere. They think that person lied to me, that person left me, that person did this or that. Therefore, nobody is true. Nobody is real. Nobody is honest. Nobody is sincere. And so what they begin to do is they needle at and they poke people around them because they want to try to expose them for who they really are. And you know what that does. You spend your time 
hollering at people, getting in their face, causing trouble, doing things to try to make people mad, you're going to make people mad. Then they go away and you go, ha, see, I knew it. But it's like, no, that person was ready to love you, but you ruined it. Have you ever noticed how hypocrites assume that everybody else is a hypocrite? You've seen this, unfortunately, but it's, it's a prime example of what I'm talking about. With a lot of these Christian musicians who a few years later show up and say, I haven't been a Christian for years, I've just been taking the money, and now I'm ready to publicly no longer follow Jesus. They always say something like, every Christian's just faking it. And I'm sitting here like, no, we're not. <laughs> like, well, all Christians are fake anyway. And I'm like, well, what Christians are you hanging around with? You are, so you assume that everybody else is. And they think, because everybody believed my lie, how can I believe anybody else's truth? But that's not anybody else's problem. That's your problem. It's the same thing with Cain here. As Cain, because of what you've done, you're going to be driven out by yourself. Bitterness will ruin your life. What, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain, you were. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You are your brother's keeper. And you know, not only does a Christian have a mandate to not let bitterness rule their life, but to love the people around them, we as Christians have a mandate to help other Christians and other non-believers too work through their own mess. The Lord doesn't abandon us. We are to be there for each other, to help each other work through those things, to demonstrate the faithfulness of Christ when somebody is, like I just described, and they're trying to push everybody away to prove that they're unworthy, we're supposed to stick around. Well, I'm not going to sit around and be talked to like that. You have to. Jesus did. Jesus took everything and didn't utter a word of complaint. Well, there's only so much a man can take. Yeah, but the good news is you have the Holy Spirit inside you who will empower you to do more than you can take. To help each other come to the love of Jesus. Oh, you guys, if you've never seen it, I hope you get the chance someday to see somebody who is so defensive and has got those 10-foot walls and brick and steel all around them, but then you just see the gospel finally break through and all that just collapses to pieces. It's the most glorious thing in the world. Grown men, hardened men, just breaking down, weeping. And what are they weeping over? Not some profound doctrinal truth. They're weeping over, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We have the blessing and the privilege to bring that to people. It's hard, and it's a pain. And you get in the car, and you're doing everything you can not to smack that steering wheel because you're so mad at these people. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to love you, and you're not making it easy. The Lord goes, yeah, not very much fun, is it? <laughs> kind of like when Moses comes to the Lord and says, God, I can't put up with these people anymore. And God's like, you can't put up with these people. I've been putting up with all of you for all of time, Moses. That's what we're to do, to bear one another's burdens. Not only to prevent bitterness from ruling our lives, but to help others who have fallen into that, right? You who are spiritual, restore such a one, the Bible says. Well, Cain cries out, my punishment is too great to bear. God, that's too much. You've basically sentenced me to death. Because I'm going to have to leave, run away, not going to be able to be around anybody. The ground won't give me the fruit of my labor. But even if I were to work hard and have the fruit of my labor, people are going to chase me away whenever I try to plant anything. So what's the point? Of course, it would be nothing but justice, wouldn't it, if Cain were to have his life taken at this point? But you know what the Lord does? He says, everyone who finds me will kill me. 
And the Lord doesn't say in verse 15, well, it's just what you deserve, Cain. He says, not so. And he puts a mark on Cain. That, that word for mark is oath, O-T-H in Hebrew, and it means sign. Like if it says that the Lord would do a sign, or he put the rainbow in the sky for a sign, it's the same word. So it's very, very nonspecific. So to come out and, and claim definitively that we know what that is, uh, there's been all kinds of weird ideas. We don't know what it is. The Lord did something to Cain that when people saw him, they knew they weren't supposed to kill him. I don't know what it was. Matthew 5, 9. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The Lord shows mercy to Cain, doesn't he? Did Cain deserve mercy? Absolutely not. That's why it's called mercy. He does not kill him. And not only that, he prevents anybody else from killing him. Because what is God doing? He is trying to stop the greater escalation of evil. He says, I know what you have set in motion, Cain. You killed Abel. So someone's going to come and kill you. And then your kids are going to go kill their kids. And then their kids are going to fight their kids. And then there's going to be murder for the rest of history. So what does God do? God pumps the brakes. It stops here. Somebody's got to get off this merry-go-round. It's so easy to escalate, isn't it? The brothers of Abel had every right to avenge him. Even in the law of Moses, when somebody came out to avenge their kinsmen, the Lord didn't say, you're not allowed to do that. The Lord said, well, I'll give you a place where you can run and hide, and then you can have a fair trial. But even though they had the right, even though it would have been just for Cain to be killed, the Lord said no. He said no to justice and instead chose mercy. Because the Lord's like, if I let this continue, it'll just snowball and it'll get worse and worse and worse. The Lord desired peace. He desired life. The Lord still loved Cain. The Lord loved Abel, but he loved Cain too. In your life, brothers and sisters, there will be people who embitter you. There will be those situations that you think of decades later and you go, oh, I know what I could say to that guy if I had that chance all over again. I've written it all down. I've got pages of notes of what I would say. Even something that happened to you when you were a kid. Why did I let them talk to me like that? There's going to be things that embitter you. There are even going to be those that wound you on purpose. There's stuff that happens accidentally, but then there's stuff that people do to hurt you intentionally. And you know what Jesus said? If anybody strikes you on the right cheek, let him hit the other one too. Now we hear that and we go, that seems sort of lame. But Jesus was in a Middle Eastern honor-shame culture. This is like challenge people to a duel kind of days. And if you refused the fight, it was shameful to you. The person that insulted you wouldn't be shamed. You would be shamed for allowing them to insult you. And Jesus shows up and says, who cares? Let him hit you. How can you say that? Jesus had a zealot in his midst. Remember Simon the zealot? The guy that carried a sword with him everywhere just in case the revolution was going to start today. I want to make sure I'm ready to go. They strike you on the right cheek, let him hit the other one too. And if somebody wants to sue you and take your jacket, let him take your shirt too. What is Jesus teaching? To be a pushover? No, he's teaching to do what God is doing here with Cain. You be the one to get off the merry-go-round. You be the one to say, we're not going around with this cycle anymore. I'll stop it. 
We've been fighting for years. Nobody remembers who started it. So I'll be the one to back off. I'll be the one to de-escalate. You can walk every conflict back to Cain and Abel, can't you? Well, I don't like you. Well, I didn't like your dad. Well, my mom didn't like your dad. Well, our grandparents hated each other. Back in the old country, our families were feuding. And you can carry it all the way back to Cain and Abel. Our grandparents were arguing on the ark. I don't know. Take it all the way back if you want. Somebody's got to step in and say, enough. I'll forgive. I'll allow myself, Paul said, to be defrauded. Because I want this to stop. This mess is worse than what happened to me, and I want it to be done. This is what God is teaching us here. This is what Jesus did. Did Jesus deserve anything that happened to him on the cross? No. He says, I'll take it on me. Put it on me. So that way you can forgive each other. You can start forgiving each other. And you know, it didn't take very long before people in the church and outside of the church started to dislike that idea. And a few centuries later, what do you get? You get Islam that shows up and wants to take all the stuff that Christianity said, but what does it want to put back? It wants to put back the vengeance. It wants to put back the violence. It wants to put back the manhood, as it called it. But the Lord knew, like, we've got to stop this. We've got to stop. I'm going to put millions of people on the earth that are willing to be insulted and defrauded and even killed without retaliating. It will bring peace to the earth. Remember what Solomon said? He said, don't answer back reviling for reviling. Because you know what that's like? It's like putting hot coals on the head of the person that insults you. When you yell in somebody's face and they don't yell back, have you ever felt worse in your life? When you get your kids in trouble and they look at you, I'm sorry, all of a sudden you feel terrible, even though you're doing what you're supposed to do. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. The Lord's like, just do that all the time. <laughs> do not repay reviling for reviling or insult for insult. It's time to stop being bitter, to start forgiving, and start loving one another. The Lord says, I'm not going to let anybody kill you. This stops here. This was bad. What will happen after will be worse. So we're going to put a stop to this. You're going to let him get away with it? Yes, I am. Because maybe Cain will grow older and wiser and move on from this. And we all can remember it as something that we're never going back to. Or we can set a new standard, which is when we're angry, we kill people. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 15. This is a longer passage, but this is also good. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones. Like that? God's chosen ones? God's chosen people? What are God's chosen people like? Holy and beloved? What do we put on? Compassionate hearts. Kindness. Humility. Meekness. What's meekness? I have the power to get back at you, but I'm not going to. Patience. Bearing with one another. What's bearing? Putting up with one another. I don't have to put up with you. If you're a holy one chosen and beloved of God, you do. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive well, how often do I have to forgive them? Well, let's start with the standard of Jesus on the cross, and we'll go from there. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Well, that sounds really difficult. Yeah, it is. It's a hard way, but it's a better way, isn't it? 
Isn't it better to walk that way? I mean, you look out throughout history. Has, has violence and murder and bloodshed ever solved anything? Even if two countries are fighting, one country overthrows the other country, now we have peace. But now you've got a race of resentful people that someday are going to grow up and start the fight all over again. And then this third group that got involved, they're now going to have a legacy of hatred against this group. And now everybody fights everybody. And you get smaller and smaller countries as the people that are on the same team, the groups shrink in size. The Lord said, we're going to stop all that. And Cain settles in the land of Nod. My mom used to refer to bedtime as the land of Nod, but uh, that's not what this means. It's actually very interesting. That word for Nod is related to the word for Nad, which uh, with a long A, and it means wandering. So Cain settles in the land of wandering. So this is possibly a symbolic name that Cain didn't actually settle anywhere. Cain settled in the land of wandering all over the world. But it could have been an actual place. We just know that it was east of Eden. Every time somebody sins, they go a little farther east of Eden, farther and farther away from the presence of God. Y'all, there are people today who are in the land of Nod. They're in the land of wandering because of their own bitterness. Your job is to go out and retrieve them in the love of Christ. If we as Christians do not de-escalate, who will? It'll just keep getting worse unless the church steps in and says, we're going to show love even when love is not deserved. Verse 17, we'll go a little faster to the second half of this chapter here. Cain knew his wife, there it is again, and she conceived and bore Enoch. There will be two Enochs in the early chapters of Genesis. This is not the one you're thinking of, probably. She conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, that is Cain, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erod fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. Again, this is a different Lamech than the father of Noah, who we'll see later. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naama. Well, you get a description here of the line of Cain. The Lord promised he would not die, and he didn't, at least not yet. We see that eventually he built a city that he named Enoch. This is the first city we see referenced in Scripture. And I thought about this. I figured I would just present the options and let you meditate on it. I do not know if Cain built this city out of defiance, saying, I'm done wandering, I'm building a city. Or if this was protection, that Cain's been wandering his whole life, now he's got a family, now there's a big, large clan, and people are after him, and he says, okay, we'll stop here. I think we're far enough away, but we're going to build a city, and we're going to build walls. Or of desperation. Could have been just, I can't run anymore. We're going to stop and make our stand here. Doesn't say, he's not explicitly condemned for it, uh, but for whatever the reason may have been, this is the beginning of what you might call civilization. We're no longer dwelling in fields. We're no longer eating the fruit of the trees of Eden. We have cities now. And Lamech, we'll say more about him in a moment, he has three sons here who are major big-time innovators. Steve Jobs has nothing on these guys. The first one, Jabal. 
This is the beginning of the domestication and the breeding of animals. We already saw that Abel was herding sheep. So this is probably less herding animals that are already docile and domesticated. This is the beginning of domestication and breeding. So this would be the first guy that lassoed a Mustang and said, we're going to learn how to ride these things. The first guy that took a wolf and said, you know what, if we trained these things, they probably would be pretty good guards against all these people that want to kill us. This is the beginning of livestock, breeding, domestication, something we take so for granted now, but pretty spectacular. Next we have Jubal. You see these names all rhyme, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal. And uh, Jubal was the beginning of music, the lyre and the pipe. Lyre was a stringed instrument. The pipe, of course, is a wind instrument. Drums are probably pretty easy to come up with as opposed to stringed instruments, we'll say. But this is the beginning of music. And then, of course, we have Tubal Cain, who was the beginning of forging metal, metallurgy, it's called. So this is now we have iron and bronze being forged. You know, it's... it's Another mark of the legitimacy of Scripture that we don't have any weird stories about the beginning of these things. All these other civilizations and legends, they have stories about how there was this one God that like took a jellyfish and stretched it out and it became, I'm making this up, and it became a, a guitar and that was the first guitar, you know, and that's how we have music now. Or that the gods brought down metal and one of the gods accidentally forgot his, his sword and then people learned how to make swords. There's no weird stories about this. It's just... They figured it out. They were smart. This also tells us that civilization began early. Adam and Eve and their descendants were intelligent people. They weren't knuckle-dragging cavemen that had to figure out how to make fire. They were smart. They were figuring out how to, I don't even know how to forge iron. Let's put it, let's, let's be real, okay? It was the beginning. The Lord created people to fill the earth. And we're still using all three of those things. We also need to know, we'll see this next week in chapter 5, that these people are living for centuries. So Adam and his children would have known each other for a long time. It's not as if Cain died and never knew Lamech. He would have known Lamech probably. You can break down the numbers in the next chapter if you like. It can be fun to do that. But the population is exploding. because Everybody's having a ton of kids. And then those kids are having kids. And everybody's sharing with each other. So these things are going to last through the flood because it wasn't as if Cain had a monopoly on music. You know, it would have spread to the other generations. And we can see that Seth and his line are going to have children named Enoch and named Lamech. So they might have been named for each other. You know, they would have, they would have known one another. This also just, this, I think I might have mentioned this before, and this shouldn't be a hang-up for you, but... People get cute as if we've never thought of this before and say, well, where did Cain get his wife from? Real short, Cain married his sister. Okay, and we go, ew, yeah, ew, okay, all right. But there's a couple things to note. Number one, this was a temporary solution that was never repeated. All of a sudden, we have a lot of people and those lot of people spread all over the earth. Number two, the Lord did not specifically prohibit this until the law of Moses, so there was no prohibition against this yet. Number three, the main reason, not just morally, but scientifically why incest and marriage between close siblings is, is not good, is because the genes get all tangled up and you can get all kinds of mutations. This early on, when the curse hadn't had time to work on the DNA for so long, it would have been 
less dangerous. So it's, you're not going to get as inbred as quickly back then. The Lord saw to it. But it's not as if this was God's plan forever, you understand. This was, okay, we've only got two people, but before long we're going to have a lot more. So you, you don't need to back away from that question. The question I always ask is, now why do you think that that's wrong in the first place? You know, where do you think morality comes from? That it could only have come from God. And now all of a sudden we're sharing the gospel. It's, that's my little move that I like to do right there. It's fun. But we see there are great leaps being made technologically. There's leaps being made socially. We have the first cities. But we're going to see through this guy Lamech, who married two women. This is not a good thing. It never ends well. People would say, well, the Bible permits polygamy. I dare you to find a story in the Bible where somebody has more than one wife and it has a nice ending. <laughs> it doesn't. Okay. But this guy Lamech is not a good dude. Let's read verses 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. The wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech seems to have been a great man. He fathered children who were smart, have figured things out. He's also the first polygamist, and he seems to have had no fear of God. And your Bible may have this in verse format because this was Hebrew poetry. This is the oldest song that we have on record. It's not a nice one, is it? It's been called before the Song of the Sword. What is he doing? He's boasting to his wives about what a tough guy he is. He says, yeah, that kid wounded me. I killed him. God said that if anybody hurt Cain, he'd avenge them sevenfold. Anybody hurts me, I'm going to avenge them 77-fold. This is like when you hear boxers talking before a fight about how great they are. You know, I'm the greatest of all time, and I'm going to murder you, and I'm going to beat you down. And he wrote this song for his wives. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe they liked how tough he was. Who knows? But this guy embraced the legacy of murder and vengeance in his family rather than grieving over it. He was inventive in his evil. Well, what's to stop me from marrying two women? God only made one wife for Adam. Yeah, well, I'm more of a man than he ever was. So I'm going to marry two women. You shouldn't kill people, Lamech. Hey, somebody comes after me, I'm going to come after them 77 times harder. Now these wonderful innovations that his children have made, they're going to be used to oppress and blaspheme, rather to worship and create beautiful things. So the first guy invents musical instruments and songs, and the first song we have here is this guy talking about how he's going to kill a bunch of people. I'm a musician. It's hard for me sometimes to ignore the content of music because I'm like, dude, that the beat is so good and the guitar work is just immaculate and you can see they're doing things with keys and they're doing things with, it's so cool. But sometimes you just hear it and you go, I just can't. You've taken something so beautiful and so wonderful and you've put it to the glorification of just this nasty stuff. I can't do it. Music is a beautiful thing. The working of metallurgy, it's going to be used eventually not just to make implements for farming and things for self-defense or whatever. It's going to be used for idolatry later on. The domestication of animals, not only is it just going to be we're going to have dogs to be our companions and oxen to pull the plow. No, we're going to have war horses that we're going to ride into battle. It degrades and defiles the people who use them. This is what happens when you don't deal with sin early. It begins to affect areas that you never planned to give over to wickedness. 
you can see how the devil has succeeded largely in corrupting the seed of woman so far. He killed Abel, corrupted Cain, and now he's got this whole line of wicked people that are just getting worse and worse and worse. And this is the fight that we face. Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. This is the battle that we're seeing. But there's hope in verse 25, coming to an end here. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. She has another son. This is Seth. It actually would have been an SH in Hebrew. It would have been Shet. That's how you would have said that name. And again, it means compensated or granted or appointed. Again, maybe it's hard to tell, but it could be that she's like, okay, I didn't do anything for myself here. This is a gift from the Lord. And Seth is the line that's going to endure even to this day, as we're going to see, because the only line that's going to survive is the line of Noah. And Noah was a descendant of Seth, not Cain. So eventually the whole line of Cain is going to be wiped out. And he has a son named Enosh, and true worship is restored. How do you repair a broken person? How do you repair a broken family or a broken community? How do you fix a broken church or a broken workplace? We have to call upon the name of the Lord. Coming back to worship of the Lord, repentance. This whole thing began with a bad attitude in worship. And it spiraled out of control. And the only solution is coming back to the Lord in worship. If we're going to sit here and obsess over the problem of your life and everything that everybody's ever done to you and try to fix it all and make sure that you get everything exactly right and you get paid down to the, to the nickel of what's owed to you, you're going to spend forever doing this. But the Lord gives us one solution, that is to leave all that stuff behind and come back to him. Because in the end, whatever we owe to each other is nothing compared to what we owe to the Lord. And the Lord said, if I forgave you everything, you can forgive each other little things or big things. Because Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Not just saved from hell, but saved from your own destructive tendencies. That sin that gets worse and worse until you're so far gone into the land of Nod, the land of wandering, you can't even find your way back. There's no counselor that can fix that. There's no medication that can fix that. There's no law or public policy that can fix that. There is no quick fix to sin because sin is internal. There may be a place for all that stuff. But there's only worship before God that's going to make a real difference. When you stop getting your eyes on yourself and you put them back on Jesus... That's the cross. And that cross that Jesus died on is a solution for you too. You've got to die on that cross with all your prejudice, with all your bitterness, all your pain, all the things that have been done to you on purpose or on accident, everything that eats you alive, you've got to die on that cross and walk away from it. I don't know if I can do that. You can do that because Jesus has given you the power to do that. And Joel 2.25, the Lord promises that he will restore to us the years that the locusts have eaten. You have years of your life, you just look back and you're like, what a waste. There's nothing redeemable from that time of my life. The Lord's like, I can bring something out of that. 
But it starts with humility. It starts with the cross. It starts with worshiping and calling upon the name of the Lord. Cain refused to humble himself and rule over his sin. And he let his sin rule over him. But the Lord shows us that through Seth, through that example, you can start fresh, call upon the name of the Lord, and see God produce something new and wonderful out of your life.